You can listen to all episodes of Leonard ad-free on Wondry Plus. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts. On June 26, 1975, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, two FBI agents, Jack Kohler and Ronald Williams, were shot to death virtually at point-blank range with rifles. Mm-hmm. Did you kill them? This is a clip from a 1991 60 Minutes segment. The voice you just heard is Steve Croft. And this is Leonard Peltier. No, I did not. No. You didn't pull the trigger? No, I never killed those agents. Did you fire at those agents? Yes, I fired at them. Why? Because they were firing at me. And I fired back. Are you guilty of anything? The only thing I'm guilty of is trying to help my people. June 26, 1975, two plainclothes FBI agents assigned to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, Jack Kohler and Ronald Williams, were tailing a red pickup on Highway 18. When the truck pulled off the road and onto Calvin and Cecilia Jumping Bull's ranch, Kohler and Williams followed. What happened next is a matter of intense dispute. Either the passengers in the lead vehicle jumped out brandishing rifles and began firing at the agents. Or the agents shot first. But by noon, Kohler and Williams were dead. So was an Indian by the name of Joe Stunts. And nearly 50 years later, with heart trouble and early stage lung cancer, Leonard Peltier sits in the Coleman Federal Penitentiary, serving out the first of two consecutive life terms for his presence at the shootout. You're listening to Leonard, a new podcast series about Leonard Peltier, the longest serving political prisoner in American history. I'm Rory Owen Delaney. And I'm Andrew Fuller. We've spent the last year working to share Leonard's story with a new generation of people. Who he is, how he ended up behind bars, and why we believe he deserves to go free. Leonard is 75 years old and his health is poor. With COVID-19 ravaging prison populations, Coleman is the last place he should be right now. But time is running out. It's literally now or never to help get Leonard released. As you may have guessed, Andrew and I are a couple of white guys. Lakota call us Wasichu. It means the greedy one, or literally, he who takes the fat. So why are two Wasichu telling Leonard's story? This is how we feel we can best use our privilege right now, advocating for a man and his people who've been brutalized for more than 400 years. More importantly, we're telling this story because Leonard granted us permission. Last year, we got in contact with Leonard through Paulette Dautuil at the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee, the nonprofit organization that's been fighting for Leonard's release for decades. It took us a while to convince Leonard that our intentions were genuine, that we weren't just trying to profit off of him. And ultimately, he gave us his blessing. But in an email, he also left us with a warning. Here's Peter Coyote, reading for Leonard. Okay, brother, let's do this. But follow my lead or you'll lose me. I'm not going to support something that isn't accurate. So let's do this. 
Let's get your shit together and let's get shit done. Leonard added a smiley face, but he couldn't have been more serious. Retelling Leonard's story right now could literally be the difference between him leaving prison alive or dying behind bars. We also want to be upfront with you, our audience. This podcast is a work of activism. We don't question Leonard's innocence, but that doesn't mean we're choosing our facts selectively. It's really hard to, to break through the misinformation. This is Kevin Sharp, a former United States District Judge for the Middle District of Tennessee, and he's been petitioning the Trump administration to grant Leonard clemency. We'll be hearing a lot more from him. Even people who want to support Leonard talk about this in the wrong way because everyone's confused. You know, he was convicted of shooting and killing two FBI agents. No, he wasn't. You know, by the time it comes out that the uh, that a ballistics test, you know, what we refer to as exculpatory evidence, was hidden as a Brady violation, it should be over. You know, I'm just not opening up. I never talked about this stuff before. You know, kind of kept in my pocket. This is Edgar Bear Runner. Over the decades, some of the most influential people on the planet have called for Leonard's release. Kevin Sharp has been working on Leonard's case for the last two years. Multiple popes, the Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Muhammad Ali, Kurt Vonnegut, and Marlon Brando have all called publicly for his release. But Edgar Bearrunner has been there since the beginning. Even at 68, battling stage 4 prostate and bone cancer, Edgar's advocacy hasn't waned. But I'm willing to, to tell my side, my perspective. Yeah, so we got to do something about it. we got to keep uh, the noise on. And I can help, help you go. Whoever's left, whoever's still alive, a lot of our people died, you know. Oh, God. Uh, but there's still some people. You can't come out anytime you want. Perfect. Find out at uh, the, the first week in August. Edgar has his own story to tell. He was on the Pine Ridge Reservation on June 26, 1975, mediating between the Indians and the federal government. But he also knows how to find and talk to people with knowledge of that day. Knowledge that they haven't been able to share publicly in half a century. Knowledge that could help free Leonard. One of the people Edgar wants to help us find is a woman named Angie Long Visitor. Angie was a witness for the prosecution at the grand jury back in 1975 that brought charges against Leonard, Bob Rabadou, and Dino Butler. Edgar believes the FBI violated her constitutional rights in order to coerce her testimony. If she'll speak with us, she could shed new light on the tactics the government used to make its case. But Angie's been hard to find because she doesn't want to be found. We're on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota as the guests of Edgar Bear Runner. He's helping us make sense of what happened on the Jumping Bull Ranch the morning of June 26, 1975, when an Indian and two FBI agents were killed in a shootout that resulted, eventually, in Leonard's arrest and 44-year incarceration. But to understand why the FBI was shooting at Indians on the sovereign Pine Ridge Reservation and why Indians were firing back, we need some context. A lot of context, actually. 
If this podcast was a hundred seasons long, we couldn't document the full brutality the Indians suffered at the hands of European settlers. The cultural genocide started when Columbus landed in the, quote, West Indies, unquote. And if you ask almost any Indian living on a reservation in 2020, the oppression continues unabated to this day. By the way, we decided to use the term Indian throughout this podcast, rather than Native American or Indigenous, because that's the word Leonard, Edgar Bear Runner, and all the other Lakota we spoke with used to describe themselves. None of these names is accurate. Before the Europeans showed up, the Sioux called themselves Ixawikasa, which translates to the natural humans, the free, wild, common people. But back to Pine Ridge. If we can whittle it down, the series of events that led to Leonard's arrest began almost a decade before the incident at Oglala, in July 1968. As the 60s drew to a close, 100 years after the Civil War had ended, America was in the throes of a second major reckoning with its colonialist past. Even though neither law would ever live up to its potential, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act had addressed segregation and voter suppression of African Americans in the South. But there were no Indian-only drinking fountains in Minneapolis or Chicago. Disenfranchisement of Indians was just as brutal as the oppression of black Americans. It just wasn't as visible. The misery of the indigenous peoples was mostly hidden from public view, out on the reservations. So, in the summer of 1968, a group of Indians decided to make their misery visible. And to do so, they formed AIM, the American Indian Movement. Much like the Black Panthers, or Black Lives Matter half a century later, AIM was created to focus attention on police brutality and endemic poverty in Native communities. It's worth noting here that AIM was actually founded in Minneapolis, 50 years before George Floyd was lynched by Derek Chauvin while three other officers stood guard. Police were killing unarmed people of color in 1968. They're still doing it today. And police brutality is actually one of the main reasons Leonard Peltier became active with AIM. He joined the movement officially in November 1971, but he didn't become deeply involved until he took a job in Arizona. The level of police brutality he witnessed in the Southwest shocked him. Here's an excerpt of a conversation between Leonard and the British documentarian Michael Apted from 1991. Leonard was incarcerated at the Fort Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas at the time. Only the transcripts remain of this exchange, so Peter Coyote is reading for Leonard again. I moved to Page, Arizona because they were building a power plant on the Navajo Nation. I mean, I was making good money. I was bringing home something like 300 a week after taxes and everything. And I probably would have been very satisfied with that because I suppose it was all right. It was good to make some money for a while, you know, to be able to buy things. I started hanging around in Flagstaff and I rented a room in this hotel where a lot of the Indians stayed. One day I was sitting in the window and this Indian comes walking into the parking lot. A police car pulled up. I was sitting there watching it, you know. The guy didn't look drunk. He wasn't staggering or nothing. But they started talking to him. They started getting into an argument and they beat the hell out of him. I mean, literally, with batons, right? I mean, they were really, really working on him. So I hollered out the window. I says, hey, I'm a witness to this. 
and that's police brutality. And they looked up and see me, and they stopped. And I says, I'll go to court against you quick, you know? If this guy brings charges against you, I'll go to court quick. And they told me, you mind your own business, you get the same thing. I says, well, come on with it, you know? I kept noticing that type of racism against the Navajos all through the time I was there. In the transcript of their conversation, Michael Apted then asks Leonard, what about the politics of the American Indian movement? What attracted you to that? And here's Leonard again. AIM wanted to get the government to honor the treaties. That was one of the main goals, the politics of it, to stop the dual justice system. Because I've experienced that all my life. Observed it, witnessed a lot of brutality by law enforcement agencies, businesses, everything. Discrimination against Indians. There's been numerous cases of where a non-Indian would kill an Indian, and if he was unfortunate, he'd end with a little small prison sentence. So these were some of the things that AIM was going to try to correct. To bring maximum attention to police brutality, economic inequality, and legal injustice, between 1969 and 1973, AIM masterminded a series of high-profile occupations and protests. In November of 1969, a coalition that included AIM, calling itself Indians of All Tribes, seized the island of Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay. I have a proclamation I'd like to read you. This is Richard Oakes, a member of the Mohawk and one of the main leaders of the Alcatraz occupation, addressing a group of journalists who'd sailed out to the island. We, uh, the Native Americans, reclaimed this land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. <clears throat> we wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. We know that $24 in trade goods for these 16 acres is more than was paid when Manhattan Island was sold, but we know that land values have risen over the years. Our offer of $1.24 per acre is greater than 47 cents per acre the white man is now paying the California Indians for their land. We will give to the inhabitants of this island a portion of that land for their own, to be held in trust by the American Indian government. For as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea, to be administered by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs. The occupation of Alcatraz didn't topple the federal government, but it did bring heightened awareness to the plight of Indians, and it certainly raised the profile of the activists involved, for good and for bad. Not long after the Alcatraz occupation ended, Alcatraz leader Richard Oakes was shot to death in Sonoma, California by a white supremacist named Michael Morgan. Morgan was charged with voluntary manslaughter, but the jury sided with the defense and acquitted him. Morgan had fired his weapon in self-defense, they agreed, even though Richard Oakes wasn't armed. Fuhrer at Morgan's not guilty verdict sparked outrage among Indians across the country. And in October 1972, their rage coalesced into the trail of broken treaties, a cross-country protest seeking to bring national attention to the subhuman treatment Indians had suffered literally for centuries. Organized by AIM, a caravan of cars, vans, and buses set off from California, bound for Washington, D.C. The convoy swelled as it traversed the nation. And when the demonstrators arrived on the East Coast in early November, just days before President Nixon's re-election, the Trail of Broken Treaties protest 
had grown into the largest gathering of American Indians to ever assemble in the capital. AIM demanded to meet with President Nixon so they could deliver a 20-point position paper articulating their grievances. We did not come to arrest anybody. We did not come, you know, to disrupt traffic, shout obscenities. You're hearing from one of the protesters who traveled to Washington to confront President Nixon. Our burn flags are to confront anybody physically. We came here for meetings. But the Nixon administration refused to receive them. So AIM seized the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in D.C., visible from the west wing of the White House, and held it for six days. In the end, the Nixon administration caved and gave the Indians $66,000 to cover their expenses and vacate Washington. But the truce didn't resolve anything. In fact, it just ratcheted up tensions on both sides. And those tensions erupted fully in 1973 on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. That was the year that Dick Wilson was elected as Pine Ridge Tribal Chairman. You'll be hearing a lot more about Wilson and his goon squad in the next episode. But for now, it's enough to know that the traditional members of the Oglala Nation, along with the leadership of AIM, believed Dick Wilson was a corrupt puppet of the federal government. So to protest his election, AIM and members of the Oglala Lakota took over the village of Wounded Knee, where in 1890, soldiers of the U.S. Army killed more than 300 unarmed Lakota and began a third high-profile occupation in as many years. We have tonight one of the strangest stories to come along in a long time. A group of American Indians has taken over the town of Wounded Knee in South Dakota, and they have been holding it for nearly a whole day. That's how NBC Nightly News led the first day of coverage about the occupation. I feel that this is history repeating itself almost exactly. And that's the voice of Russell Means, a leader of AIM, speaking to a film crew in the early days of the Wounded Knee takeover. We are suffering the same hardships they suffered. Starvation, hunger, inadequate shelter, inadequate warmth, uh, same inclement type weather, the same harassment surrounding by uh, much more firepower than than they had. Uh, The fact that they were forced to surrender and give up all their arms and then were massacred. See, we're not going to make that the same mistake. If they're going to massacre us, we're going to take some people with us. After a 71-day standoff that claimed the lives of at least two Indian protesters, the occupation ended in a stalemate. Nearly 600 members of AIM and the Oglala Lakota were charged with crimes ranging from trespassing to attempted murder. Only 2% were ever convicted. But the damage had been done. By tying up its leadership in court, the federal government had crippled AIM, and the organization never recovered. But things were about to get a lot worse. Between 1973 and 1975, the guardians of the Oglala Nation, the Goon Squad, tribal chairman Dick Wilson's personal extrajudicial militia, turned Pine Ridge literally into the most violent place in America. Despite having a population of only 10,000, at least 64 people were killed by the goons during a two-year period. Almost all of them members or sympathizers of AIM. To put that number in perspective, 
so many people met violent deaths on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1974 that it's like if in 2019, 14,000 people were murdered in Los Angeles. So that's why, if you were a member of AIM camping out on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975, and you heard bullets whizzing by your head, you didn't have much time to wonder if the shooters were aiming for you. You already knew they were, because they'd been shooting at you for two years. So you grabbed your rifle, dug in, and fired back. As we've gotten to know Leonard's case and the circumstances surrounding the shootout at Jumping Bull Ranch that led to Leonard's arrest, nothing is simple. Everything requires context. So let's go back to the summer of 1975. On June 26, 1975, two FBI agents assigned to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, Jack Kohler and Ronald Williams, were investigating the whereabouts of a young Indian, Jimmy Eagle, who was wanted for the theft of a pair of cowboy boots. If that voice sounds familiar, it's Robert Redford. And this is a clip from Michael Apted's 1992 documentary, Incident at Oglala. The next voice you're going to hear is Norman Zagrosi, the former assistant FBI regional head for South Dakota. They had a warrant for, for Eagle, uh, and so they turned around and started following the, the, the vehicle, which uh, we believe uh, led them into the jumping bull uh, complex. The Jumping Bull compound was an area on the reservation set back from the highway, which consisted of four Indian residences and a campsite containing a dozen or so members of the American Indian movement. And here's Robert Sikma, former assistant U.S. attorney. Kohler and Williams drove right toward the Jumping Bull property. At that time, uh, Special Agent Adams was about 15 miles away uh, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And he had his radio on, and he could hear the conversations between Williams and Kohler. He said, they're not going to stop. It looks like they're going to run. It looks like they're going to shoot at us. Then they're firing at us. We're under fire. Next, we hear from Darrell Dino Butler, a member of AIM who is camping at the Jumping Bulls. Here's how he recalls the first moments of the shootout. We had a camp set up down over there by, by the creek, way over there about... You know, a quarter mile, half a mile away from here. I was just getting up that morning. I heard these shots. When I stepped out of the teepee, a young, one of the young brothers came, was running down the hill towards the camp like that, and he was saying, get, get your rifles. Here's Norman Zagrosi again. And the agents were following the vehicle into the field, into a hollow. The Red Scout uh, went up a dirt path kind of place. Uh, they got to a fence, and the agents were following separate cars. Uh, they came out of the Jeep, anywhere from six to seven, eight people, maybe four, uh, in open fire. Bob Rabadou, another AIM member, who was later put on trial for his role in the shootout, remembers running up from the camp to defend the compound. Erratic gunfire was going on while we were trying to uh, run up here and assist in what, what, whatever was happening here. We had no idea what was happening. Norman Brown, who was just 15 at the time, followed the more elder AIM members to protect the residences on the property. As soon as we got to the rise, you know, we heard some rounds go by us, you know, because we weren't really, it was, it was in a real quick moment, and we ducked, you know, and that's where we started returning fire. 
And from what I saw, there was two vehicles down there with the hoods open. Here's Rabadou again. These two individuals obviously saw us when we came up. And they turned towards us and they were firing at us. And we simply responded by firing back at them. And we got into the best positions we could in order to protect ourselves and uh, the women and children that were in the houses. And finally, here's Leonard Peltier. And I heard crying and everything. I told him, look, we've got to get those women and children out of that place, man. You know, there's, cause there's little babies there. There was, uh, I thought the old folks were there. Uh, I said, we've got to get those people out of there, man. What the hell's going on? At some point during the exchange of gunfire, as he was trying to get to his trunk to retrieve his rifle, FBI agent Jack Kohler was hit in the arm. Here's former assistant U.S. attorney Robert Sigma again. By that moment, the uh, FBI office in Rapid City, one of the girls heard, I'm hit, and then heard a groan. That point is when Special Agent Williams himself had been shot and injured to the point where he no longer communicated. Bob Rabadou, up on the rise with the other AIM members defending the compound, remembers looking down at the plainclothes agents, now both immobilized. I discovered that uh, they both had been hit by my gunfire. Rabadou then explains how he and the other AIM members, including Dino Butler, but not Leonard Peltier, approached the agents' vehicles. About halfway, I heard several uh, shots fired. Here's U.S. Attorney Sigma again. Special Agent Kohler was laying on the ground along the side of his car. He had a tourniquet made of Special Agent Williams' shirt that was wrapped around his arm. Special Agent Williams was sitting alongside and that he had put his hand forward like this. Now when he raised his hand, the gun was put against his hand and fired. And part of his hand and the bullet went through his head and carried off the back of his head and he was dead. And it was at some time in that same time that Special Agent Kohler was shot through the top of the head first. An instant thereafter, he was shot through the neck, carried away the bottom part of his jaw, and he died instantly. When we arrived at the cars... Bob Rabadou again. We discovered that both these individuals were dead. At that moment, it seemed that uh, our whole lives had been transformed. There was nothing left. Uh, the only thing we could look forward to uh, was death. If, as you're listening to Rabadou and Sigma, you feel like something's missing, you've picked up on one of the mysteries at the heart of the shootout. Someone did shoot the agents at point-blank range. In 1989, a man who identified himself only as Mr. X came forward and admitted killing the two FBI agents. Here's Bob Rabadou. It was only a couple of years ago that I had an opportunity to talk with the individual uh, that uh, was the individual that killed these two agents. Uh, he told me that uh, he was coming to uh, the Jumping Bull home to deliver explosives that uh, we had uh, asked him to bring uh, here. Shortly after he had passed the Oglala housing, two cars entered Highway 18 behind him. He became very apprehensive because he didn't know who they were. He pulled off 
onto the jumping bull home and he glanced in his rearview mirror and he said he noticed that these two cars had followed him onto the property and he became very apprehensive then he stopped he got out of his pickup along with the driver and when they got out of the pickup they brought with them their weapons and when they did that these two individuals also got out of their vehicles bringing their weapons with them and he claims that these individuals fired on them first and others evidently joined in there is bullets flying all about and and uh, they realized that hey we got this dynamite and we better get it out of here and that's exactly what they did they got back into their pickup and uh, pulled it further up on top and out of line of fire of these two individuals this story isn't true here's leonard peltier again but i can't and will not say anything about it for me to testify against anybody or even mention try to get somebody else in trouble is wrong this is against my belief it's against my religion my culture it's against everything that we have fought for and stood up for and what we were told by our elders what a warrior society is all about it's the only thing i've got left in life right now i'm just living being stored near as a piece of meat to be put it literally and for me to and i got my dignity my self-respect and i'm going to carry that with me even if i even if i you know even if i die here it's that's just my fate so there's been so many mistakes and the only thing that i don't know who made up the idea which is keeping Leonard in prison because they did the Mr. X thing, right? This is Jean Roach. We'll hear a lot more from her in episode two. But back in 1975, she was living at the AIM camp on Jumping Bull Ranch. And she thinks Mr. X is a distraction from the core facts of Leonard's case. You guys might find out more info, and I really don't care. It just pisses me off because there is no Mr. X. There never was. There's a lot more to the Mr. X story. In fact, we may dedicate an entire episode to him. Who he is, or as Gene Roach just alluded to, whether he exists at all. But for now, it's much less important to prove that Mr. X killed the agents, and much more important to show that Leonard was, quite literally, framed by the FBI. And one of the people who can help tell us how the federal government built a fraudulent case against Leonard is Angie Long Visitor. To help Leonard, you can purchase his artwork at whoisleonardpeltier.info. All proceeds go to fund his legal defense. So check out his stuff. He's super talented. You can also help Leonard on social media by tweeting messages of support for Leonard's clemency to at POTUS and at Real Donald Trump, as well as to Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. We know the president loves Twitter, so tweet, tweet, tweet. Let's keep Leonard in his timeline and mentions. It's a scorching, muggy day in early August 2019, and we're on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota in the Oglala Cluster Housing Project. It's the day of the cultural parade, one of the highlights of the annual Pine Ridge powwow. So we've got a full car, 
Our rented Nissan seats five, but we've got six passengers, four adults, two kids. Squeezed in the back, between his wife Violet and their two granddaughters, is Edgar Bear Runner. I'm going to find out. Uh, Maybe they know. Can you hold your, uh, your, uh, your recording equipment down? It scares people too. We pull into the driveway of Wanda Sears Little. Edgar goes out to talk with her. They greet him warmly, and nobody seems overly concerned about the two Wasichu in the Nissan. It's dusty and hot and getting hotter, so the Littles, a dozen of them, three to four generations, hang out in the shade of the house. Edgar goes up to a woman in her 70s with dark hair and glasses. That's Wanda. Back in 1975, she and her husband June we're living on a ranch adjacent to the Jumping Bull compound. Edgar turns and points to us. We wave sheepishly. A few minutes later, Edgar returns to the car. He looks pleased. That's a good friendship. Very good friendship. They seem really nice. So I think we're making headway here. And thanks uh, to you. Everybody in this community knows Angie as a hermit. She's six to herself. The feds disrupt her were She's ashamed of seeing people. That stinks. Angie Long Visitor, along with her husband, Ivis, and their three children, were living on the Jumping Bull Ranch back in 1975. NPR reporter Kevin McKiernan spoke with Angie just days after the June 26th shootout. Here's Angie's recollection of that morning. I have one girl. She's four years old. And a little boy, she's, he's two and another little boy, he's nine months old. So I told my husband that it's shooting here at it too, so we just grabbed our kids and ran out. Oh, I was so scared. I just grabbed my kids and I just left. And I, we just started running real fast. Then we just went down the hill. We got to the highway and one of my, my husband's uncles gave us a ride to Oglala. During their initial investigation, the FBI interviewed Angie Long Visitor multiple times, but they didn't get anywhere with her, or anyone else. The government convened a grand jury, but almost immediately had to dissolve it when at least 50 Indians, including Angie Long Visitor, Edgar Bear Runner, Gene Roach, June Little, and Wanda Sears, all refused to cooperate with the proceedings. Frustrated, the feds charged Angie Long Visitor with obstruction of justice and took her into custody on September 16, 1975. On November 24th, after being held in jail, separated from her children for three months, Angie finally agreed to testify before a second grand jury. We don't have Angie's exact address. There are a few trailers scattered on the horizon. Edgar thinks she could be living in any of them, so he waves down several passing cars. Eventually, a driver points out where he thinks Angie lives. If we could get Angie to talk and Angie to open up and say, this fed scared the shit out of me. They had me in jail for no reason. They trumped up charges. They scared the hell out of me. And they made me say things I didn't want to say. But it's because of my freedom, my own freedom, I had to say, make a false statement. If she could say something like that, man, Peltier would be free here. Peltier said that. Go tell to that lady and find out why she said that. You know, who put her up to that? Uh, 
uh, he knows that what she said was bullshit. We just need to be nice to her to uh, get her to tell it's the truth without be threatening her or nothing like that, you know? Um, and man, that would uh, open, she's the key to Lennon's freedom, actually. So, uh, hide this stuff yeah, here, got, yeah. and don't scare her right off, but I'll talk sure. to her, if we can get her to live, you know? And she's willing to talk and all that, then I'll call you over, you guys really make her feel important, you make her feel good. Should I put this away then now? Yeah, yeah, Might put it well, away. Right. All right. I don't want it to psychology hurry. Yeah. You won't even talk to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I'll just hide this stuff, okay. put it away. I'm going to take it down. Uh, it's not good. Okay. All right. We park outside of Angie's trailer. An Indian man peeks out of the door as Edgar approaches and introduces himself. After a brief exchange, Edgar goes inside. Fifteen minutes later, Edgar emerges. So you just came I'm, out I'm uh, really happy today. Uh, I had a visit with uh, Angie Tulance. It turns out Angie Long visitor remarried and took the last name Tulance's. Angie Tulance, uh, she still got fear in her today. I, I could feel it in her. She didn't want nothing to do they, with any, they got one with any uh, interviews. Uh, I made her laugh on different points, tried to ignore that statement, her statement. Um, I told her that uh, um, Leonard Peltier uh, is sitting in there over 44 years for something he did not do. And we, nobody's mad at you, Angie. Nobody's mad at you. They understand what the government puts you up to that. Uh, it's time to, uh, to correct the wrong. And first she didn't want to testify. She put it off. Well, I'll come back in two weeks. Then she brought it down to a week. And I said, these guys only come down here for uh, a few m amount of days. Uh, they're leaving Monday back to L.A. Said, well, time to come back in a week. So I said, you know, um, everything costs money. They can't come back like that on a plane uh, in a two weeks or a week. They're leaving Monday. So she said, well, I'm right, I can't talk today because uh, uh, we're going to go to the parade. And so I gave her a $20 bill and I told her to buy cotton candy and enjoy herself at the parade. Uh, but I had to do this, you know, even though I didn't have the resources, but it's working. It's working for me and we're going to get a statement from her this uh, Sunday evening. It's very important we don't miss that. This is really complicated. Paying a source could be considered bribery, coercion. We didn't tell Edgar to give her money. It wasn't our $20 bill that he handed her, but that doesn't matter. There was a transaction, money for a story. Edgar believes that the payment doesn't corrupt what she tells us, if she tells us anything, that it doesn't harm her credibility or ours. He thinks it will actually make her more honest. Angie knows Edgar isn't rich, so for him to give her $20 is a huge sacrifice on his part. That now she's indebted to him. That now she needs to be honest. But it bothers us. And we also see Edgar's point. The FBI kept Angie in jail on trumped-up charges for two months and interrogated her daily. They threatened that if she didn't provide testimony against Leonard, she'd never see her children again. If $20 can help reverse the damage... Maybe it's worth it. We literally don't know. I feel good. Thanks. I feel good. I really feel good. Uh, I accomplished something for Leonard. Bingo. Good day. 
Next time on Leonard, Political Prisoner. Edgar takes us to the scene of the shootout at the Jumping Bull Ranch in Oglala, where he intervened as a mediator and bought time for Leonard to escape. When I came to the buff, the end of the hill here, I was summoned by uh, SWAT teams down here along the creek bed down there. They had my marks on the forehead. I shouldn't turn around, drop, and then kill me on the spot. A young Indian uh, by the name of, I think it was Edgar Bearrunner, came to me. He felt that the uh, shooting should cease and there should be negotiations. At that time, the situation was rather tense, so the possibility of an assault was imminent. We're young, we're in the trees, and we could see them. They're like We're like leveled to the cops and the FBI's were driving by. They just thought we were just kids in the trees, you know, being nosy. Everybody else was hiding in the culvert underneath the, you know, the road they were driving on. Finally, when that plane left them, they said, go ahead and start running. Nothing but grass, no trees, nothing. We had to run. And the same time when he was running, they were shooting at us all over. This podcast is produced by Rory Owen Delaney, James Kalin, and Andrew Fuller. It was written, recorded, and edited by us. Thanks to Bobby Halverson for the original music we're using throughout the series. Thanks to Peter Lauridsen and Sycamore Sound for their engineering assistance. Thanks to Peter Coyote for literally helping to give Leonard a voice when we only had his words on paper. Thanks to Kevin McKiernan for giving us access to the audio from his reporting on Pine Ridge in 1975 and for helping us fact check this episode. Thanks to Michael Apted for the tremendous work he did on his documentary, Incident at Oglala. Thanks to Steve Croft of 60 Minutes who was reporting on the story back in the 1980s. Thanks to Paulette Dautuil at the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Thanks to Kathy Peltier and Anne Begay and Rigo23 for welcoming us into their family. Thanks to Edgar Bearrunner for guiding us through his land and his history. Thanks to Kevin Sharp for helping petition for Leonard's clemency. And thanks, most of all, to Leonard Peltier. To get involved and help Leonard, call the White House at 202 456 1111 and request immediate clemency from President Trump. For more information, go to www.whoisleonardpeltier.info or find us on social media at Leonard underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram or facebook.com backslash Leonard podcast. This podcast is a production of Man Bites Dog Films, LLC. Free Leonard Peltier. <laughs>